Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our fourth season, but we remain just as excited as ever to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen to today as we wrap up our July themes on food production, agriculture, and land use. And today we're going to focus in on the intersection of climate change with the food we eat and the food we don't eat. Basically, we're going to be talking about the intersection of diet and environment or that whole interplay. It's all about nourishing ourselves and nourishing our planet. Now, in our everyday lives, we often overlook the profound impact our food choices have on both our health and the environment. The relationship between our environment and the food we eat is intricate and influences both our health and well-being, as well as that of the planet, significantly. Our dietary choices have far-reaching consequences, as they are closely, closely intertwined with climate change, with resource consumption, and the overall state of the environment. And understanding this dynamic can indeed empower us to make informed decisions that positively impact our own health as well as the world around us. The environment significantly shapes what we eat and what we don't or what we can't eat. Climate, geography, and agricultural patterns dictate the availability of certain foods in different regions. For example, areas with abundant rainfall as well as fertile soil, are more conducive to cultivating a diverse range of fruits and vegetables, while arid, dry regions may rely more on drought-resistant type crops. Climate change is primarily driven, of course, by human activities, and one of the major contributors is our current food system. The production, the processing, and the transportation of food require vast amounts of energy and resources that lead to greenhouse gas emissions and environmental degradation. Livestock farming, for example, is responsible for a significant portion of methane gas as well as nitrous oxide emissions and potent greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. On the other hand, plant-based foods, especially when sourced locally, nearby, and seasonally, tend to have a smaller carbon footprint and they consume fewer resources. Transitioning toward a diet that includes more plant-based options and reduces the reliance on resource-intensive animal agriculture can significantly mitigate the impact of our food choices on climate change. Moreover, the food industry's impact on environment influences the choices available to we as consumers. 
large-scale animal agriculture, for example, requires large amounts of land and large amounts of water, and it contributes to the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing our climate change. As a result, meat-heavy diets are prevalent in regions with intensive livestock farming, while plant-based or plant-heavy diets are more common where plant agriculture dominates the scene. Our environment's influence on food choices can have profound effects on our health. Diets heavily reliant on processed and calorie-dense foods can contribute to obesity, diabetes, as well as cardiovascular diseases. And such diets are often associated with regions where highly processed and readily available foods are prevalent. On the other hand, regions with diets rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, often see better health outcomes. And these foods provide essential nutrients, vitamins, and antioxidants that support overall well-being and reduce the risk among us of chronic illnesses. Our food choices, in turn, have significant consequences on the environment. Intensive livestock farming contributes to deforestation. It contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, as well as water pollution. And the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides also harms our ecosystems, affecting biodiversity and water quality. However, adopting sustainable dietary practices can significantly mitigate and decrease these environmental impacts. Choosing locally sourced and organic food supports regenerative, or I like to say restorative agriculture, thus promoting healthier soil, increased biodiversity, and reducing the greenhouse gases that are driving our climate change. So why should we care about all this? Well, first of all, is our personal well-being. It's like, what's in it for us? A diet focused on fresh, nutritious, and sustainable foods improves our physical and mental well-being. And embracing healthier choices can lead to increased energy levels, improved mood, and reduces the risk of chronic diseases. It helps environmental conservation. Climate change poses significant threats to our planet's very, very delicate ecosystems, wildlife, and our natural resources. By making informed food choices, we can contribute to safeguarding the environment and preserving the planet for our future generations. It also involves environmental conservation. Our environment provides a foundation for our food system. And by supporting sustainable agricultural practices, we can protect our ecosystems, we can preserve our very scarce natural resources, and we can help tamp down on climate change. It also has a global impact. Individual food choices collectively shape the food industry worldwide and influences agricultural practices. Embracing sustainable diets can drive broader changes toward more environmentally friendly food production across the globe also should care because it involves resilience and food security. Climate change poses risk to food production, making it essential to adopt diverse and resilient dietary practices. By supporting local and seasonal foods, we can enhance food security and adapt to changing environmental conditions, as well as help to navigate our worldwide political situations. So the relationship between our environment and our food choices is a very, very powerful one that impacts both our health and our planet's well-being. And so understanding how our environment influences the availability and the production of food empowers us to make informed choices.
Now, this is a lot, but here today to help us explore and unpack some of this are two experts who are going to make us smarter. Today, we have with us Joy Iwakum, who is a research scientist and works as a product agronomy scientist at Biomakers. And Biomakers is a soil biology company focused on functional genomics, which she's going to tell us much more about here shortly. And Joy has worked on research projects from observing the drought-resistant properties of sorghum all the way to the feasibility of growing produce atop closed landfills. Joy is focused on soil microbiology and its correlations to nutritional content in produce. And with that, she's focused on the conclusions that we can draw about public health. Our next guest is Paul Behrens. Paul is an author and associate professor at Leiden University. Paul's research and writing on climate, energy, and food has been extensively circulated and has appeared in scientific journals as well as mass media. Paul has written a popular science book called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science. And that was published in 2021, and it describes humanity's current trajectory and possible futures in paired chapters of pessimism and hope. That was very interesting that you did it that way. And Paul won international champion in the Frontiers Planet Prize in 2023. Thank you. We really appreciate you making time to join us and you as well, Joy. And we're going to go ahead and go to break before we start. And we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. To the last of our shows for the month of July on food production, agriculture, and land use. And today we're focusing in on the intersection of climate change and how it impacts the food that we eat and the food that we don't or can't eat. We're talking about the intersection of diet and environment. And we are back with Joy Joaquin and Paul Behrens, and they're going to make us smarter like them. So I want to start out with uh, you, Joy, and tell us a little bit about what Biomakers does and what you do and what they do is you focus on functional genomics as it relates to soil biology. 
Okay, so Biomakers is a functional genomics company. Um, we receive soil samples. Uh, our headquarters is in Davis, California, and uh, we have another headquarters in uh, Spain, in Valladolid. So we do DNA sequencing of soil, and then uh, we have a global soil, soil database from samples that we have uh, tested all over the world. So we are providing functional genomics information about soil. Uh, looking at bacteria and fungi, we're focused on ITS and 16S sequencing. And with that information, we provide data on resilience of soil to stress, biodiversity, functionality of key metrics like carbon, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, potassium, as well as um, micronutrients and several, several different categories that we're looking at. Uh, to talk about soil resilience and... Um, Let me ask you this, Joey, though. Who uses that? What's the purpose of that? And what is the, what is the importance of that to us ordinary people in our everyday lives? So uh, different growers, uh, farmers, uh, retailers, anyone who is working with soil on a large scale can send a sample to us. And it's beneficial because it gives information on microbial communities in the soil. So... Often uh, we say, oh, there's not enough, we need to add fertilizer, there's not enough chemically available nutrients for us in the soil. And while that may be true, there could also be that the microbial community is not there to work with those nutrients. Indeed. Does that mean that people are sending it to you to find out how to make their soil better so that it would grow more or better crops? And or they send it to you because maybe they're having issues with growing things? Because from what you're telling me, I, if I were a farmer, if something were happening with my soil, it wasn't growing or things were not growing the right size, I'd want to know why. So I might want to send my soil to you. On the other hand, if I wanted to grow more, better, bigger, then I would think that maybe by you looking at my soil, you might tell me something about how I could do that. Uh, yes. So... Lots of different people send soil samples to biomakers. Uh, for people, there are people that have been doing uh, lots of different chemical fertility testing, and they still can't find a solution to their problem. And then they'll come to us, or people that want a more holistic look at their soil health uh, to sort of pair that information together, biological information with chemical information, and uh, what it means uh, it generally is. We're, we're talking about soil health, but our soils have been degraded uh, for many years with different management practices. Uh, not everywhere, you know, every farmer is practicing different management techniques, but looking at your soil's ability to uh, carry out specific functions will really help in determining which management practices you should carry throughout the season. Indeed. Thank you for that. Uh, now, Paul, I want to ask you, though, go back to you. What is the relationship, though, between climate change and food with the broad stroke? <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes in both directions. So the food system really impacts climate change by emitting greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Um, but also the food system is impacted by climate change in terms of the extreme weather events, the droughts, these sorts of things that farmers have to put up with. Um, if you look at the contribution of food to climate change, uh, about 25 to 30 percent of all climate change emissions are from the food system, depending on how you calculate it. Really, we can basically say about a third of all emissions are from the, from the food system. Three quarters of those emissions, so most of those emissions, come before the farm gate. So these are the producing activities of producing the crops, of rearing the animals, 
or from deforestation, which is a big one. So deforesting lands in order to produce uh, monocultures or to allow for ranching, say, in Brazil. We can think about that, for example. Most of that deforestation is driven by animal agriculture because either the ranching is there put in place or you grow soy, which is then fed to the animals, uh, and then that's also because of the animals. Um, so local food is not so much of an issue for climate. You know, food transport emissions are generally about 10% perhaps of total food system emissions. Um, but it does have social benefits, which are important. So we're really focusing on, you know, what we grow rather than where we get it from. The last thing to add here is that the food system on its own can push us beyond our climate targets, beyond 1.5 or even 2 degrees. Uh, of warming. Even if we do the entire energy system transition, the emissions from the food system that are not related to energy will push us beyond these terrible uh, limits. Such as? Um, emissions from uh, all different types of agriculture, all different types of transportation, how we get things around, um, but mostly uh, from the way in which we produce foods. Those, those emissions such as um, enteric fermentation, so basically the, the burps uh, from cows, uh, the nitrous oxides that are applied to the uh, soils, and these sorts of emissions which aren't part of the energy system, uh, but then emit into the atmosphere. Um, and these emissions are enough to push us beyond 1.5 degrees, or perhaps even 2 degrees of warming. I don't suppose we can do anything about the cows burping and making methane, but it seems as though we can do something about what's put into the soil. Well, I mean, with the there's, there, people are trying to reduce the amount of methane that comes from uh, cattle. Um, it's only a very, very small uh, sliver. So uh, we're talking a very small percentage that's currently inhibited in, in terms of giving cows certain things to eat to reduce the uh, methane uh, that comes from the cows. Um, ultimately, um, due to a lot of other environmental issues, due to a lot of other social issues, um, really most science or the scientific consensus on this is that we have to move away uh, from so much consumption of meat and animal products in high income nations, especially, you know, one way to actually really address the problem is to reduce the consumption of that problem. So reduce the amount of cows and the amount of uh, livestock that we're rearing in the first place. Indeed. And that's been a drumbeat from, uh, I suppose, more the health sector for a number of years, Paul. Are we seeing yeah. any significant minimization there. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Yeah, it's, it's good for, I mean, we're basically over-consuming in most high-income countries. Um, and so when we think about high-income countries, we're talking about the US, we're talking about most countries in Europe, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Japan, these sorts of countries. Uh, we're over-consuming uh, and animal products and red meat especially, uh, the, what would be good for our health. Um, but it has huge uh, environmental impacts. About 80% of all of those agricultural emissions that I mentioned come are related to animal agriculture in one way or another, either through the deforestation of land, mm -hmm. uh, through the emissions from the animal animals. And when we look at what we need for the future, the diets are the biggest areas which we can address. Indeed. But are, are we seeing any statistical uh, impact in terms of decrease of uh, uh, livestock and decrease of uh, us high income nations eating meat? Yeah, so we are seeing some changes in the consumption of meat. So it depends where you look. Um, the U.S. is only is only sort of coming down very slowly, uh, substituting quite a lot of uh, beef for chicken, for example. Um, so in one sense, that is better because beef has a bigger impact than chicken. Uh, but chicken has its own, you know, uh, issues in rearing. When we look at Germany, uh, the Netherlands, 
some of the West European countries, we're actually seeing reductions of about sort of uh, five to ten percent, depending on which country you're looking at, over the last sort of uh, three or so years. So you are actually starting to see uh, reductions. Um, it's the data on this is actually quite hard to um, pass. It's quite hard to know exactly how much we're reducing, but we are starting to see these reductions in some of the West European nations. And and so just to, to summarize, in terms of how our diet it impacts climate change. You're saying it's it's mostly uh, with livestock and the meat we eat. Yeah, it's mostly livestock and the meat we eat, which it, our diets impact climate change, overwhelmingly so. Indeed. Thank you for that. Joy, I want to ask you, in terms of the work that you do, what are the most significant ways that you've seen or studied that climate change is, an, is affecting our food supply? Uh, we know with climate change, we are seeing our farms are more stressed. Uh, there are areas that are receiving rain in amounts that they've never received before. Uh, and uh, conversely, droughts uh, for longer periods that on record. We have the hottest days on record uh, in the summer already. So the, the changing weather, the unpredictability can lead to a lot of harvest loss, a lot of crop loss, as well as... Um, in general, you need more soil, you need soils that are more resilient to stress because of these um, uncommon and now more frequent uh, weather events. And I imagine that you see that in the soils that you sample and that you you study. We test for resiliency in soil. We are looking for microbes, bacteria, and fungi specifically that are known to provide stress adaptive functions. So. We are, and we do have groups that will run a trial with us and say, you know, this is an area that we're treating with this management practice that is supposed to increase soil resiliency. And then here's a control area where we're not doing anything and we'll measure the improvement over time. Let me ask you, though, if you could define what you mean by soil resiliency so that we can all have a better understanding of that. Right. So soil resiliency, in the context of biomakers, we're looking at bacteria and fungi that can help uh, against pathogen pressure, against uh, drought, uh, against uh, taking up toxins like salinity or heavy metals, and uh, all around just when we have infrequent uh, or when we have um, variable weather patterns that the plants, we have microbes in the soil that can deliver to the plants for them to resist those changes. Uh, it's kind of like you, you know, you, you go outside and you let's say, let's say you're in Colorado and this is true. Um, you leave your house and it's raining and you have your rain jacket. And then, uh, you know, the weather changes, it's almost like you live a few seasons in a day and you're not prepared. So if you have a change of clothes with you, you're probably going to be more comfortable versus if you don't and then um, you're, you're cold or wet or what have you. So Indeed. We're going to go to break now, but I want to come back to you right after the, the, the break because I think I have an example that everybody can identify with. We'll be right back on the other side uh, of the break with Joy Joaquin and with Paul Behrens. Thank you all. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on food production, agriculture and land use as we dig into the intersection of climate change with the food we eat and the food we don't or can't eat. And we are back today with Joy Joaquin, 
with Biomakers and with Paul Behrens, who is author and associate professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Again, thank you all so much for being with us. Now, Joy, before the break, you were telling us about or helping us to uh, understand soil resiliency. And as you were doing that explanation, it keeps jumping into my mind that it's like our immune systems. You know, the human body, we all know, we, we like with COVID, we go into it with an immune system. We're much more likely to be able to withstand it better. But if we go into it with a, a, a compromised immune system, we may be in trouble. So can you say that soil uh, resiliency is similar to like the soil's immune system? Would that be an explanation that, that maybe most of us could identify with? I, I think so, yes. That's a great example. Uh, we often liken soil health to gut health. So if you, you're talking about um, you know, probiotics and antibiotics, you want to take them at a certain time, you want to know what you're putting in your body, uh, you want to know what you're sensitive to, uh, what you should avoid. Uh, very similar analogy when we're talking about soil health. And you may have mentioned this before, but I want to make it really clear to people about why we must care about soil health. Okay, great question. Uh, so soil health is the soil health is the foundation for our health. It is the we, we talk about nutrients. People take multivitamins and other supplements. Everything. If you have a healthy soil, then everything we need is there. It's being transferred to our produce, and then for us to consume that produce. We are talking about you know the the modern world we live in with the supply chain. So you know produce is harvested, and by the time it gets to you, it might not be at its peak. But it all begins with the soil, and the healthier our soils are, the more resilient they are, the more that means the, you know, the higher quality produce we have, which is the foundation for our health. So, Joy, though, how can we breed healthier, more nutritious food in the face of what climate change is doing to our natural resources in our soil? Right. Um, and, and I like how you put that because uh, it is here. It's not, I think often people talk about climate change like, oh, it's coming, it's, it's going to be bad. But it is very much among us. We, we are already living in it. We're already seeing the effects in our soils uh, and in our day-to-day lives. So uh, at this point, I think it's very important to become aware of what our struggles are. There are a lot of different management practices we can take to encourage soil resilience and soil health. In the U.S. and all over the world, we're dealing with an issue of soil erosion. So when uh, crops are harvested, if that, if that land is left without anything on top of it, the wind will blow away the topsoil. So that's the, you know, the base of us, you know, to, to that people talk a lot about the energy sector and, you know, this is our first energy sector is for us to be able to eat. So we're, we have soil erosion. So one way to prevent soil erosion is to make sure that that land is always covered, whether it's with cover crops or another cash crop. And that also goes into tilling. Uh, there are traditionally the more mechanized our soils are and the more mechanized management practices we're taking, the more soil we're losing and we're compacting soil, which is also uh, not helping when we talk about soil resilience and soil health for everything to be sort of squished down. And um, there, so there are a few different management practices you can take, whether it's implementing cover crops, tilling less, uh, and there's also, we talk about rotating our crops so that Every crop's microbiome and needs are different. So if we're planting uh, corn in one area, if we're able to plant another crop the next season so that the soil has time uh, to, and the, the same nutrients aren't being depleted every season. So there's a, a long list of things to take into account, but th- those are three that come to top of mind is rotational cropping, uh, cover cropping, and reduced tillage. 
It seems to me, too, that, I don't know, maybe that's what uh, genetic engineering is attempting to do, is attempting to replace some of um, the losses of nutrients or benefits from our soil. And then it seems to me, too, that some of this processing and over-processing may also be attempting to do that. Where do you all stand with that in terms of uh, soil scientists? There's, yeah, are you talking about like GMOs? You mean like genetic, yeah, genetically yeah, yeah. modified? In other words, I'm looking yeah. at the fact that our soil is being degraded and mm-hmm. it's in general because of climate change not, prepare, not providing us with the nutrients that we need for our best health as compared to the more processing of the food and then the genetic modifications. It looks like those two are juxtaposed there. Yeah, I think that we... And what we've seen is, you know, GMOs are, there's in our, you know, large food system and our mm-hmm. growing populations, GMOs have largely been a way to keep us fed. Uh, you know, GMOs are ways that scientists will insert. There are lots of different GMOs that have lots of different functions, but by and large, uh, some of them are very beneficial where we're inserting bacteria that can be pathogen resistant. Uh, one of them, we talk about like BT eggplant and things like that. Those have been really helpful in feeding different populations. And the the thing about GMOs, though, is since they are new, as with any emerging technology, we haven't seen their effects over a long period of time. Uh, and it is changing soil microbiology versus planting seeds the way that we used to. You know, there's no one linear solution where, oh, this is what we need to be doing to fix everything. It's a really complicated system because we are people and we have we, we, we have also, you know, from our past made it quite complicated from the different ways that we've been managing. So I but I don't think that GMOs are increasing the risks of climate change, if that was the question. OK, so what are some of the most promising innovations in sustainable agriculture that you all are seeing there? We so there are a lot. Um, at, at biomakers, I can just talk about um, that first. Is we're looking at gaining this information about soil microbiology, which is also a new and emerging science, really, and learning more about how to work with our soils so that we can manage more effectively. Um, there are a lot of other different, uh, you know, agricultural tech solutions. Talking about precision agriculture and um, drone work and looking at predictive modeling so that we can move more quickly since with climate change we don't have that much time to really turn things around. Uh, Paul, can you talk to us about how our diet, the food that we do eat, impacts food security or food insecurity? Yeah, maybe maybe I can offer a a related vision that's a little bit different uh, for the food system. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that is also very important about the current animal agricultural sector is that we use about 80% of agricultural land for animals. And if we're able to reduce our animal product intake, um, which we can do because they're incredibly inefficient, animals throw away between uh, 83 and 97% of the calories that we feed them. If we, if we eat the calories directly, we would save a huge amount of land and still be healthy. So we modeled a diet which would be healthy for us and healthy for the planet. Uh, And we found that if people in high-income nations ate this diet, which to give you some perspective, it's about a small beef burger every two weeks. That's the amount of red meat in it. So it's not a lot. It's a big shift. But if we were able to do that, we'd save an area the size of Europe. What about chicken in that diet? Would we be allowed any chicken? (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of chicken, but it's much, much lower, much lower to what we're doing today. And so what, what, what this means is, is that if we release all this land, think of what that does for our food security. Think of what that does for diversity, for diversification. We can then move away from some of these monocultures and then have some of this rotational cropping that uh, Joy was just talking about, some of the diversity in the different plant products. And, you know, a lot of people think about this in terms of cutting out meat. We have to reduce meat and we have to be somehow uh, abstaining. Well, actually, it's really a different message because we only eat a handful of plants each week, maybe 30 if we're, if we're eating a lot of different plants, but there's about 10,000 or maybe even more edible plants out there. The truth is we don't actually know. There's, there's many tens of thousands. And you can imagine how resilient and diverse uh, a food system could be that's based around that. And so when we save the, all of this land, it allows for us to have all of these diverse management practices. Farmers can do lots of different practices because they're under less pressure for the yields that they get for the monocultures that then feed the animals. About a third of all crops around the world are fed to animals. And that means that we're much more secure to climate impacts because, as we've heard, diversity really helps in terms of uh, being resilient to climate impacts. And it also means that we can rewild that land. So we found that if you were to rewild the land, rewild that area the size of Europe, we would double the benefits from the diets. So we would double the benefits from just the production side by drawing down carbon on that land. So having the trees there, having the, even if it's scrub and even if it's flora and fauna, so native um, uh, herbivores, for example, we would double the benefits. So if you think about a plant-based diet compared to a heavy meat-based diet, you're talking reductions of about 60 to 75% in emissions. But then you add on again, there's the same amount, even more, you could actually be net positive by rewilding that land if you're able to save uh, some of that land. Um, we've also looked at this in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So there was a huge impact on grain that was being produced in Russia and Ukraine. And we found that in Europe, if Europe alone did this shift towards a diet that's healthy for the planet and healthy for people, that would almost completely account for the total loss of Russia-Ukraine crop production, almost completely. In, in most of the crops completely, and in some of the small marginal crops, uh, maybe not as much, but overall. So you can imagine the food security that we would get from this, that we would get from eating the, the, the plants more directly. Indeed. Thank you for that, Paul. We're going to go to break now, and we'll be right back on the other side with Paul Behrens with Leighton University in the Netherlands and with Joy Joachim with Bion Makers, and they are making us smarter. Thank you all. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB, grocery stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. 
Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To our show today on food production, agriculture, and land use as we focus in on the intersection of climate change with the food that we eat and the food that we don't eat. And we are back with two experts who really are making us smarter. We are with Joy Joachim with Biomakers and Paul Behrens with Leiden University in the Netherlands. And again, thank you all for being with us. Uh, Paul, before the break, you were talking to us about food security, food insecurity. Let me ask you something that just kind of comes to my mind as you were explaining that. Do you think we could ever reach a point, and if we would be better off if we reached a point where globally we designated particular areas or regions, I dare to say countries, who grew certain things or certain types of produce and livestock, and that maybe we'd be able to balance it out that way. I mean, to some extent, uh, to some extent, we already have that sort of specialization mm-hmm. because the products are grown where the climate is best for those products. So, for example, rice is often grown in Southeast Asia, both for cultural but also for uh, climatic reasons. Um, tomatoes, for example, from Spain are generally, uh, you know, cheaper to produce because of the climate there, although less so nowadays when we've got the climate impacts really hitting hard. But historically, they used to be able to be grown there cheaper than, say, greenhouses in the UK, which is a much colder, wetter country. So to some extent, we already do that. Um, I think what I'm arguing for and what probably what we're talking about in terms of diversity and soil diversity, too, is more diversity than that. Um, There's lots of different products that can be produced in lots of different regions. Um, And it's about being able to have rotational cropping, um, have lots of these different products, maybe intercropping actually in the same crop, uh, providing uh, sort of synergies with one another. And there's lots of really interesting examples uh, from indigenous peoples around the world in terms of how different products are produced in the same uh, crop, uh, which then can uh, give structure and scaffolding for one another in terms of the soil health and these sorts of things. I can give you an example if you want, but um, these sorts of uh, practices are only really possible if we're able to move away from this monoculture attitude of treating farmland like factories. And as I'm saying, in terms of my sort of vision of what I'm saying about a future food system, um, you can only really get around that if we free up quite a bit of land to allow this to happen. But based upon um, also information that Joy was giving us early, it, it seems like to rotate the crops is the best thing for as they say, regenerative or restorative agriculture. Yet, what is a percentage of, of farming that's, that's done in that way? Because it seems like it's a very good thing. I'm not understanding why everybody doesn't do it. Well, it depends on the country to country. It really just depends around the world. Um, Joy might know the exact figures uh, for the U.S., uh, but um, the amount of intercropping or rotational cropping is, uh, is, is very much in the minority. Uh, as far as I understand it, in the U.S., um, often the commercial uh, incentives that people are under in terms of the uh, monoculture uh, cropping. It's yeah. often uh, cheaper for uh, farmers to do that, to collect certain subsidies and subsidy systems, which is something we haven't really talked about yet. But the subsidy systems really pervert the way in which we would potentially be uh, producing food uh, away from environmentally friendly options to environmentally unfriendly options. At least that's very much the case in uh, Europe. But uh, Joy Joy might have the, yeah. Yes, so we are, 
So rotationally growing uh, and intercropping are the the better soil health uh, decision to make. However, the, it can be uh, less ideal for big uh, for you know landowners who have large acreage. So that because they have to they can't mechanize as easily. We if you're talking about efficiency and yield. Uh, you're typically there's a direct link with using more uh, mechanized practices. So you want to be able to you know put your John Deere through and grab everything or seed everything, and you want it to all be the same and uniform. Uh, in the U.S., we see this a lot in the Midwest with corn and soy, uh, and in California with other specialty crops as well. So it really um, the, when you talk about farmer ROI, that that's often what we see be sort of juxtaposed, like you were mentioning earlier, you know, what's the cost of soil health? And the the truth is, you know, it's it's invaluable. We need it, you know, no matter what the mm -hmm. cost. Otherwise, we won't be able to eat for, you know, in the future, and the world will look very different. Uh, but here in the short term, it can be um, not the most financially efficient choice for a farmer when they're thinking about their bottom line. So that's where we talk about, uh, you know, subsidies and working with our governments to help people shift their management practices to more environmentally friendly solutions. And, and this is one area where um, precision ag agriculture could potentially help because the mechanization that we've currently had is all based around, you know, big crops of uh, corn, uh, whereas precision agriculture, when you're talking about some levels of automation and, and these sorts of technologies, you may be able to then better integrate at a lower cost uh, into cropping and things like this. Um, but this is very much sort of hypothetical in the next sort of, uh, you know, few decades. It's not something that's happening now. And as Joyce says, all of the subsidies are set up. Well, a lot of the subsidies, at least in Europe, are, are set up wrong for this. What about the subsidies here? Can you talk about that just a little before we want to go on to what ordinary people can do? Uh, talk a little bit about the policy and subsidy and how that's determining what we eat as well as what we can't eat. In, in the U.S., uh, corn is heavily subsidized, uh, subsidized so much so that when what you pay for it at the store is nowhere near what it costs to actually produce. So the and same for soy. So this really also for farmers who are you know in the business to to make their living, uh, we'll have more people that want to grow corn because it is guaranteed by the government and uh, it's how our system is set up for it to be a successful crop. So uh, that really heavily influences things. And just talking about corn in and of itself, uh, it's a pretty water uh, dependent crop and it's not very drought resistant. So when we talk, if you want to talk about diet shifts in the U.S. Um, even without getting into meat and dairy, we can even look at our grains and we can be growing crops like sorghum uh, that are more drought resistant in the place of corn. And mo a lot of this corn is also grown for animal feed and not, it's not all for us. So thinking about that as well and encouraging the diversification of grains is um, something we could be doing more of in the U.S. So are you saying that what the food we eat and the food we don't eat can be traced to some degree back to government policy and subsidies? 100 percent, Bernice. <laughs> just, to, just to put this in perspective, in Europe, um, we actually see the most subsidies going to animal products again. Uh, and what we find is if you actually trace the feed through, so the corn that's being fed to the animals or the soy that's being fed to the animals, you double the amount of subsidy that the animal products are getting. So you're, you're very much tilting the playing field. And when we look at the amount of subsidies to vegetables, for example, much, 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 much lower. Um, and so, you know, where we, wherever we look, we see the most damaging products being produced for overconsumption, which is bad for our health and bad for the planet. 
In other words, the the crops that are, again, bad for the environment and bad for health are the ones that are being subsidized. The, the, the crops and, and the animals. And the subsidy comes from our tax dollars. It does, Bernie. <laughs> so we are subsidizing bad health and negative environmental impacts. Okay. But, but that's the point of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is to really be able to educate and inform ourselves about what's really happening uh, so that we can make the impacts. We just got three minutes to go, and time always passes when we're having fun. But I want to turn now and talk uh, with both of you all about what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions. And so I want to start with you on that, Paul. Well, in food systems in general is a really good one because everything that we do individually has does have a systemic impact. You know, so there's a debate about individual change and systemic change. You know, the the thought that says that all oh, the customers are the ones that are demanding things, these things, so they need to they need to change. All of those sorts of arguments that 70% of emissions come from only 100 companies, and what can we possibly do? Well, in the food system, you have the direct choice when you buy something, and the market responds to that. And we find that actually, as more and more people start to eat more plant-based diets, more options become available. And that makes even more people who maybe like feeling, oh, I'm not so sure about this, they can actually engage in it because they see exciting products come about. They, they see exi- exciting new uh, vegetables on the shelves and there's more demand for them. And we see this and we see even meat eaters starting to eat more plant-based diets. This has been shown in numerous studies that even meat eaters going into canteens with more plant-based options will pick up the plant-based options because they're exciting. It's not about abstinence. It's not about sacrifice. It's about exploration. And so this individual change really means and equals this systemic change and also talking to one another about this. Joy, can you tell us about from where you sit, what can everyday people do in their everyday lives to to help drive solutions? I think the number one most impactful thing you can do is to eat local. I there like how Paul is saying, it's not about abstinence or asking people to give up foods that are culturally important to them uh, or that they enjoy. But being aware of where your food comes from and if you can purchase it locally, uh, you know, supporting farmers markets and even just looking when you're you mentioned H-E-B earlier, you know, when you're in H-E-B or Central Market or whichever grocer is near you, paying attention to where your food came from, uh, supporting restaurants and in Texas and in much of the U.S. There are restaurants where uh, you have farmers that have their own ranches and then they're selling their meat to you. So, and if they're implementing uh, healthy management practices on their farm, you're supporting them. So, uh, like Paul is saying, it's, it really do have the power of the dollar or the euro, wherever you are, and making your consumption choices and knowing your neighborhood, knowing who's feeding you uh, is really important for your own health. And then supporting them is also supporting your health. Indeed. Thank you for that. And, and, and the other thing to add, too, and this is your area of specialty, is I think people are beginning to realize and learn much more about the, the interaction of soil and our gut. So that makes a difference, too. Thank you so much. We've been today with Joy Joachim with BioMaker. She is a soil scientist and with Paul Behrens with Leighton University in the UK. Uh, He is an author and climate change expert. And thank you all so much for making time to be with us. You indeed have made us smarter. And thank you, audience, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, 
at the water cooler and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio and listen to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.